I told the court that I'm wrong to imprison. Mr. Simpson, you, you are know. not going to the jury. There's too much being hid from you. You have to be taken out of the court. There's too much. He was one small man in a giant wheel caught. Well, I do wish to say that it's official that I'm wrongfully imprisoned right now. Uncover, Season 7, Dead Wrong. I asked him if he killed Pipple. He said yes, and I'd be next. Available on CBC Listen and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and this is The Current Podcast. To endure or pass through endurance test after endurance test only ever gave endurance test passing abilities. Simply lasting was great for a wall, for a fortress, but not for a person. That is from author Tommy Orange's new novel, Wandering Stars. It's both a prequel and a sequel of sorts to his award-winning and best-selling debut, There, There. Tommy Orange's writing explores indigeneity and the fallout of colonialization on Native peoples across North America. He lives in Oakland, California, is an enrolled member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. We've reached him in Oakland. Tommy, good morning. Good morning, Matt. What did you have in mind when, when, when you wrote that quotation that I read about endurance? You know, it, it, by the time we get to that quote in the book, uh, characters have been through a lot. And um, we have this character wondering about, like, is just lasting enough? And later in that quote, she talks about enduring or lasting is fine for a wall, a fortress, but not a person. And a lot of the characters here are having to go through a lot to survive, but, but also wondering what it means to do more than survive. And Native people um, kind of... You know, Native, Native people want to live life too, uh, not just get by. And so uh, I have characters kind of wondering at that in the book. There, there was, was this incredible story of, of young Indigenous people. And I mean, it ends with this cliffhanger when they're at the powwow. For people who've read it, they know what happens. For people who haven't, I don't want to give everything away. But did you always want to, did you know that you always wanted to go back to those characters? That there was more from those characters that you wanted to talk about? When I finished there, there, uh, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to write a sequel. Um, but I did start the sequel before the book came out, before there, there came out. I, I did, it did start happening in what felt like an organic way in March of 2018. And, um, I did know that I, I wanted to focus on, well, I, I guess I can't say a character's name because that kind of ruins it for people with <laughs> the cliffhanger that you're mentioning. But I did know this family that we focus on in Wandering Stars that I didn't want to focus on them. This story begins with, with a boy who escapes from the Sand Creek Massacre. This is a real event. Can you just explain what happened there? Yeah, so November 29th, 1864, um, 700 volunteer militia led by uh, Colonel John Shivington attacked a Cheyenne camp the Cheyenne and Arapaho camp. Um, and there had been, um, I don't think it was a, an official treaty, but there had been a peace agreement and uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho people had been given an American flag to fly to kind of say that, that things, you're not supposed to attack them. Um, but they attacked them anyway. Um, at dawn, 700 men came and killed two, about 230, mostly uh women and children and elders. Um, 
So it was this horrific thing. And then the way that it happened, because there was a trial afterward to, to try to bring justice because of how wrong it was. Uh, and you can find this online. There's horrific details about how they mutilated bodies and, you know, carried parts of the bodies back to downtown Denver and kind of like had a party and were holding mutilated parts of bodies in celebration. What was that about? The U.S. government has been wanting to see Native people as subhuman uh, because it's more, more convenient to take over the whole place um, if you're just clearing the animals. Um, so I think it was an easier way to to get, you know, to make manifest destiny easier um, and to spread across the West and to, you know, spread democracy and civilization, all these kind of like coded words for some of the more horrific ways that that happens. Um, so I think the celebration was in, it was called a battle for a long time. It wasn't called the Sand Creek massacre. Mm. Um, and so if the, if the, if these men were thinking they just won a big battle, then they were celebrating winning a battle. Part of this also plays out at, at what's known as the Carlisle Indian school, which was created by, by Richard Henry Pratt. This is also a character uh, that we meet in the book. And again, he's, he's a real person. Who, who, who was Richard Henry Pratt? So he was, um, you know, he served in the Civil War. Um, he was in charge of the Buffalo Soldiers, actually, uh, for a short time. Um, it was sort of where he got the beginning of his idea for what he did at uh, Fort Marion, this, this prison castle that f is featured in Wandering Stars. That's mm -hmm. sort of the seed, seed of the Carlisle School. So he was a Christian man, you know, kind of a um, an austere man, and he had this vision, kill the Indians, save the man. Um, and, um, you know, in all, doing all the research I did, people that know about boarding schools, um, He's kind of a figurehead and and kind of the worst person, if you know if you're if you're reading about this stuff. But he really wasn't the worst person in the context of those times. He really was trying to do his best. I'm not I'm not defending him at all. He thought he was um, doing I, good, right? He thought that 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 in his words, Indians were men. That he had to do something to save the men. Yeah, and and a lot of people didn't think that. So what, what I mean to say is the. The context of the times is that people were a little bit more on a genocidal um, kick, and he he was trying to figure something out. How much you talk about the research? How much did you know or, or about? Because it's really familiar that story to what happened here in Canada with with what were known as Indian residential schools here. How much did you know about that? So, when I started working in uh, behavioral health in the Native community in Oakland. Uh, back in 2005, it was somewhere between 2005, 2008, I started to really understand a lot of history that I didn't grow up hearing about. I did grow up hearing about the Snake Creek Massacre. That's a family story that my dad told uh, that he heard his great-grandmother tell. Um, and this, and it, it was partly he was telling his naming story where he got his name, but it was also uh, something that our tribe was devastated by. Um, but as far as the boarding schools... I, I I knew just generally Carlisle's like in in the U.S. It's like the most famous one because it was the first one. Essentially, there's a, there's another one called Hampton, but the style of boarding school that Carlisle was was kind of the first in 1879. Um, so I knew I knew that they existed and that they were kind of horrible. And and I saw a lot of pictures of of like the before and after photos of what they did to the kids. 
um, and some archival footage. But I, I, did, I had to do a lot of research to, to, to understand more. And I, and I did know about the Canadian thing too, and also the more recent kind of uh, horrific uncoverings of um, what we all probably suspected all along anyway. How educated more broadly do you think Americans are um, about what happened to indigenous people in the United States? Oh, I would say it's, if you were to take some kind of national survey and have them answer questions, I think if it was on a pass fail basis, ever, almost everyone would fail. Mm. I think native people know, and I don't, I don't know about every native person. Um, but the way that our education systems teach native history is the pilgrims and Indians, and then basically nothing. What do you see? I mean, you're a novelist, and 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 you're you're not writing nonfiction books, but th it's drawn from some elements of of nonfiction of of what actually happened. What do you see as your role in changing that? You know, I'm trying to write, uh, yeah, about about history, about Native history, uh, about Native lives, contemporary lives, because we're often not visible in a contemporary way. Um, our depiction in film. And TV is usually, you know, cowboy Indian style or like, you know, even Killers of the Flower Moon that's out now is a historical piece. Um, so I'm trying to write, you know, a good book, a good novel that that um, that will connect to readers, um, but also reveal these parts of history that that a lot of people haven't seen and uh, and try to render render them in ways that feel true. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This feels like, I mean, a book about trauma and survival, but it also feels like a book about triumph and the kind of the long tail of, of some of that trauma. I wanted to ask you about the title of it um, because I'm a music nerd. I saw the title of it and immediately thought of, of a song by this British group, Portishead. Um, and then yeah. I, was, I, was, I was reading the book and then you quote a, a lyric from that song, and it turns out that the lyric is actually from the Bible, which I didn't know about. Maybe that says more about me than something else. But I want to read the, the lyric and, and just ask you about it. It's um, wandering stars, raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars to whom it is reserved, the blackness of darkness forever. What, is that, what does that mean to you? So... Uh, I am like you, uh, Portishead first, that's <laughs> where I heard this. And I did, you know, I did grow up evangelical Christian and I, and I did, uh, read the Bible and I, I even kind of obsessed over revelation for some, for some time. And this book, uh, that it appears in, um, comes right before revelation. It's a super small book called Jude. Um, so, okay. So I was in a warehouse signing books into in March of 2018, signing books, copies of there, there ahead of publication. And the sales reps that were helping me sign played at a Spotify uh, station based on the route for there, there, the Radiohead song. Mm -hmm. And that somehow is related to the Portishead song, um, Wandering Star. And for whatever reason, and this is kind of 
this is unexplainable. The song came on and I was listening to it and I knew in a single moment that I wanted to write a sequel and that it was gonna be called Wandering Stars. I don't know why I had the conviction in that moment, but that was where it started. And I, I came to find all these different pieces, like the Bible piece, the the Fort Marion prison castle is shaped like a star. There was a there was an actual person named Star at the prison castle, as well as, as well as a person named Bear Shield, which is sort of how I ended up tying the historical piece with the with the present because it created this family line. So I I like you started with Porter said and then sort of found all these other stars. Does that lyric? That's incredible, by the way. Does that lyric speak to that idea? Of, I mean, of, of triumph in the face of of trauma and survival, do you think? I think it it speaks to some of the atrocity and the and the struggle, but I think there's not a happy ending to that to that verse. It's, you're wandering in the blackness and the darkness forever, for forever. So I I do in the book I do try to. And I'm glad you saw the triumph. I do. I do try to create hope and a future for, for the way uh, Native people see themselves and and the way the reader might see these families. Part of that is about setting it, as you said, in contemporary times. Um, in in the book, you write that that you know everyone only thinks we're from the past, but we're here. They don't know we're here. We're still here. It's like you know we're in the future, like time travelers would feel. Tell me about that idea of indigenous people as time travelers. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, there's there's a portion of the U.S. population who don't even think we're still here, who really don't, like, not making fun of them, actually don't think there's still any of us here. Um, and I've heard I've heard people say this, and I've heard people, other Native people, like, have experience of people saying this out loud to them. You have this feeling like you're not, your people aren't here anymore, and it, it, it's this eerie feeling like, like you're only from then, but you know that you exist now. You know that 80% of, I mean, not everybody knows this, but 80% of Native people in the U.S. Um, live in cities, and it's been that way for more than a decade. Um, you know, we're driving cars and working in offices and using our cell phones and on social media and thinking about the Internet. Um, so it's it's a weird um, sort of out-of-time feeling to be a native person sometimes um, because, because we're not included in, in what is the contemporary a lot of the time. What does that like? I mean, what does that feel like to have people think that you only exist in the past? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, you know, it's to, to the feeling as if you're already gone is, yeah. is really, um, it's really actually hard to, to name what it feels like. Um, but it, it certainly feels amazing to, to be represented on shows like Reservation Dogs, um, to feel seen, you know, for, for like the first time. Um, because usually when you're looking at depiction, it's, it's from the past. And I think I, I tried to write about it, the feeling in Wandering Stars, because, because it's a little bit hard to, to name the feeling of not being there. But you must have received that in the wake of the success of there, there, where a whole generation of people who were like you, who felt like people were talking about them in the abstract or in the past, suddenly saw themselves represented in this like electric, vibrant way in a major urban center on the west coast of the United States. 
yeah the the reaction from from especially young young native people across the united states in all the touring that i've done has been um you know an amazing exuberant um emotional response people will come up to me and and tell me that they this was the first time they felt seen in a book what do you say to them i mean you know i'm just i tell them i'm grateful for sharing that with me that it means a lot to me that that the book could do that for them that they would connect to it um so i i think i i hope that um and and there's a lot of native books coming out in here in the US and I know in Canada as well yeah. first nations people uh there's sort of this explosion happening of our stories and i i just hope you know cuz we're we're diverse communities and and i just hope there's an expansion of of we cuz we've been flattened to this like feathered image and this monolith and and i just hope that there's an expansion and um this big uh tapestry of the vision of who we are as, as modern day people. There's a great line in the story. Um, a, a father passes on a story to that, that his father told him. And this, that idea that stories do more than comfort. They take you away and they bring you back better made. Is there a story that you were told when you were growing up that, that brought you back better made? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, I didn't really grow up um, with storytelling as a tradition. Uh, you know, my dad told this one Sand Creek story about he got, how he got his name, um, but he wasn't. He was a little more quiet growing up, and he wasn't. I would never call him a storyteller, um, and I didn't have anybody like that in my life. So I, and I didn't even get into fiction until my early twenties. And I, but I would say when I did, fic, what fiction did for me is that. So that feeling that feeling that I'm relaying in the, in the book doesn't necessarily come from something that happened to me, uh, other than that it happened to me from books. And when I discovered fiction kind of on my own in my twenties, what were the books that made you want to be a writer? I mean, what did you read that let you think, you know, I could do this. So it took me a while to, to feel like I could do this. Um, I was reading really in private, um, and writing in private for a long time because I, I just felt like I was behind. Um, I was, I read a lot of global literature, a lot of works in translation. I would follow, uh, publishers that I liked what they put out, like, um, New Directions and, and New York Review of Books. Um, you felt like you were behind, you know, like you needed to catch up on stuff? Yeah, because I wasn't a reader at all. You know, in high school, I would skim books to, to try to pass tests and half the time I probably wasn't passing the tests. Um, I didn't, I didn't see fiction as something that was for me. Um, and, and then I was, you know, I got a degree in sound engineering and didn't, couldn't really get a job coming out of that school and ended up working part-time in a used bookstore and part-time at the Native American Health Center in Oakland doing data entry work. And so becoming, a part of the native community in Oakland and becoming a writer kind of happened at the same time. And, uh, I, I would just wander the fiction section. It started off, I was reading religious texts and psychology and philosophy. Uh, and, but once I found fiction, it was, you know, that was all that I read. And so I read writers from, you know, a writer like Kafka or Borges or even, um, Robert Walzer, who's a pretty weird writer. Um, died in like a mental institution in his old age. He wrote like these tiny, tiny microscripts, he called them. Um, 
these people with like Clarice Lispector, Brazilian writer, these people that had these strange voices was what first drew me in. Uh, and then eventually, you know, I found the native canon and um, sort of merged voiciness with storytelling, the more, more traditional storytelling, something that is more inviting to the reader than like experimental philosophical fiction. Your first novel was unbelievably successful. Um, what was that? What was that like for you? Having just d- described what you just kind of went through in terms of, you know, being not a reader and not thinking that you could do this, then learning how to do it. Then you put this book out and it's, it, it's, it's wild, the reaction. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was, you know, it, it runs the emotional um, gamut. Um, it was exciting. It was amazing. Uh, I felt really grateful um, that I knew pretty early on that it meant that I could write for a living. And that's, that's huge because a lot of writers have to do a lot of different things to, to get by. And, um, it was also terrifying because, you know, writing is a very private thing that people generally enjoy privately. Um, and I was sort of thrust into the public. Um, I started a book tour having basically no public speaking experience and, uh, was thrown to, into the water to learn how to swim. And, uh, you know, the first year of doing that was was uh, probably painful to watch. I was, you know, I was like sweating from nervousness and um, just terrified of continually doing this, traveling and speaking in public. And, you know, I was on TV and on Seth Meyers. Um, so there was, it was terrifying and difficult, but also I got to see the you know, parts of the world that I never would have seen. I, I didn't really travel outside of the country besides one trip to Vancouver and one trip to Toronto mm. uh, because I played hockey. I grew up playing roller hockey. Um, that was the only reason I ever left the country, and it was basically airport, hotel, hockey rink. Um, and that's all kind of, of that I saw of, of Canada. Um, so I got to, you know, travel to Europe with my family for six weeks during the U.S. book tour. And... Um, Went, went on another European trip. And so it's brought a lot of amazing things. And it's, it's for a long time, it was really hard to, to feel the reality of, of it. It just felt like abstract information, the success part. Um, but now, you know, that it's, I've lived in it for long enough. I, I, I can feel it and I'm, you know, I feel good about it. I'm not terrified anymore <laughs> to speak in public, luckily, cause I'm about to go on another book tour. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I have a third book that I'm working on and I'm even sort of writing about some of that experience now mm. too. If I ask you about this kind of stories that, that, that we tell these days and the kind of stories that people want to hear, particularly when it comes to indigenous people, you have reservation dogs, you have the success of, um, our friend, I don't know if you know her, Connie Walker and her podcast stolen, which won the Pulitzer and the Peabody award. You're now yeah, part I, of. You, I love, I love that podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're part of you're part of that narrative as well, and I just wonder whether you see a change in the kind of stories that people that people are telling, but also the people are are keen to hear. Yeah, I think there's there's something happening right now, um, and we're give, we're being given more opportunities, and we're also um, there's there's a quality happening, um, and so. Quality happening with quantity is obviously a really good thing for all of us. Um, 
and it, it's I think it's a really exciting time that we've had these different moments in the U.S. Um, they've been called renaissances, um, which implies that there's been deaths. You know, for there to be rebirths, there has to be deaths of attention toward Native people, and that that has happened. Um, this this one seems to have a pretty big swell, and I hope I hope it's sustained. The energy is sustained both here and in in Canada for for these Native stories. But that goes back to that idea that, that you were saying earlier, that that it's not just a community that exists in the past, that this is a community that is here, that is doing vibrant, vital work right now. Absolutely. And and it's, the evidence is here. And, and there's aspects of justice that have not, um, and, and a reckoning that both here and in Canada, that um, we're just starting to be able to look at uh, both governments and colonization and the way that things have gone uh it's been something that the governments have not wanted to look at and and you know we don't have a truth and reconciliation or anything close to it here but uh we are starting to in the arts where we are starting to see um this big change happening and, and hopefully we can on a governmental level um and on a systemic level we can start to make changes that will rectify a lot of the wrongdoings I love this book, um, and they're there as well. But it's it's this is a, a real triumph, and it's a real pleasure to uh, to have the chance to talk to you, Tommy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Tommy Orange's new book is called Wandering Stars. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.